0: Welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of BalloonsToDrones.com where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight up to today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. And I am your host, Brian Lasley. So next year is the 50th anniversary of the Linebacker Campaigns, the massive strategic bombing effort and the last major air effort of the American Vietnam War. And that war remains pretty controversial for a lot of reasons, and one of those is that role of air power. So with that anniversary coming up, now is a great time to reevaluate that aspect of the war, uh, get into some new histories of it. And Brian, you've conveniently written a book about this subject.
1: Yeah, I, I debated whether to say I am your host, Brian Lassley, or I am your guest, Brian Lassley, because I'm, I'm one in the same today.
0: Yes, you're shifting chairs a little bit. You're going to be in the hot seat today. The book is Air Power's Lost Cause, The American Air Wars of Vietnam from Roman and Littlefield Press. So thank you so much for doing this, Brian.
1: I am really happy to be here and talk about it today.
0: So let's dive into what we usually ask people first, which is what drew you to this project and made you want to write this book in the first place?
1: So I think the thing that made me want to go back and explore Vietnam More in depth was my first book, The Air Force Way of War, which, of course, was on the developments that the U.S. Air Force made after Vietnam. And those include the red flag operation, the development of the aggressors, the creation of doc statements, all of that, you know, that revolution in military affairs we so often talk about that occurred after Vietnam. And so what I wanted to do was to go back and to explore and really try to understand the air wars of Vietnam in a more cohesive manner. There are a lot of books out there on the air war in Vietnam. There are a lot of really good books about different aspects of the air war in Vietnam, but I wanted to go back and look at the entire thing, and my initial goal was I wanted to make sense out of the air wars of Vietnam, because everything I read, I would say, this doesn't make sense, and this doesn't link, and the command and control doesn't work, so maybe I can go back and write a book that explains everything. Uh, Lo and behold, that is not what happened. At no point (laughs) in me writing this did I ever say, okay, Vietnam makes sense to me now, so we can get that out of the way right now.
0: Yeah, absolutely. As soon as you were saying that, I was thinking, wow, uh, if, if it makes sense to him, I'd love to hear about it because it doesn't make sense to me. And
1: it was, it was a really ambitious dream project, and I did not do what I set out to do in the first place, but it is what it is at this point.
0: Well, let me ask then what you think you did accomplish, and I think it's sort of wrapped up in the title. So can maybe you explain the title, Air Power's Lost Cause? What exactly do you mean by that?
1: So... To explain the title, I really have to say that this book was written in two parts. I wrote the bulk of the book in about a year, a year and a half maybe. Uh, And then to be perfectly honest, I sat on it. I was really not happy with the way it had come out. I was really not happy with any of the conclusions or lack of conclusions. Uh, And so I just let it sit and marinate for a good long time. And it was at some point in that process as I thought about it, I don't know if I picked up a book on the lost cause of the Civil War or if at some point I I decided that's what I want to do. It's not like a, a clear moment in time, but I began to see similarities between the way that the Air Force acted after Vietnam and the way that the United States South acted after the Civil War. And so this gets into the actual title of the book. And so I use a lot of ideology of the lost cause that all of our Civil War historian friends would be familiar with. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to look at these these beliefs they're they're not they're not wrong. they're not lies. they're not inaccuracies, but these beliefs that the United States Air Force held to after Vietnam, and i I wanted to go back and see if these beliefs were truths or if they were fact, if that makes sense. And what I found was, and this is where I like to use the Star Wars analogy, many of the truths that we cling to depend entirely upon our point of view. Uh, and so that's where the the entire idea or concept, of air powers lost cause came from
0: so when you get into this and the way that you've structured the book you've divided it into i think six separate air wars so what are these wars and why do you think they're so separated
1: I think it's important to note at this juncture that a lot of different authors and historians who study Vietnam divide the air conflict up into different wars. This is not something that I came up with. In fact, if anything, this is something that I built off the work of other historians, most notably Mark Claude Felter's The Limits of Air Power. So what it is is, and let me explain where I get my six air wars from. So, there is the war in the South, and the war in the South is principally a close air support war to American troops in contact on the ground and uh, the Arvin Army in contact with the North Vietnamese Army on the ground. Uh, okay, and let me back up here and state that you can also talk about being in conflict with the VC uh, and and the guerrilla aspect of the war in the South, but primarily the war in the South from the air point of view is a close air support war. So that's one war. The war in the North, going after the strategic and operational targets of North Vietnam, that is another war, right? So you've got the war in the South, you've got the war in the North, you've got this kind of hidden war that the American people really aren't privy to for a long time. And that's the war that occurs uh, against the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos and Cambodia. And that is primarily a war of interdiction, trying to go against the men and materiel coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So war in the south, war in the north, secret war against Laos and Cambodia. Uh, And then I break out a few more. I look at the Navy's war uh, as kind of a, a separate conflict in and of itself. And I do this for two reasons. One, the Navy has aircraft that are purpose-built to do the attack mission. A4s, A6s, later in the conflict, A7s, they have aircraft that are designated as attack aircraft. In fact, one of the pilots who flew in the war that I interviewed said if Vietnam was anything, it was an attack pilot's war. So the Navy gets their own separate uh, chapter, separate wars as I look at it. Uh, And then I look at the air-to-air war, and the air-to-air war... Is kind of an offshoot of the war in the North, but there's enough that goes on in the the Mig versus F4, Mig versus uh, other American platforms that I wanted to cover it in its its own separate chapter. So the air to air war is another one. Finally, I look at the strategic bombing campaigns, and so as you mentioned, as we get into the 50th anniversary of Linebacker One and Two. Uh, and then the use of the B-52 in South Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. Uh, But I look at strategic air power. uh, And in that sense, I really am using strategic as a replacement for heavy bombardment. Uh, And so I consider that a separate war. So uh, these are things, honestly, I, I guess you could quibble on depending on how you view what went on in Vietnam. In fact, some people may say, well, really there's two, there's the war in the north and the war in the south and there there that's it, there's two separate air wars. And I don't want to get, you know, pigeonholed or pinned down by that. But this was as I say in the book, just kind of my window on the world. This is how I viewed the air war in Vietnam.
0: Yeah, I think it's a it's a structure, right? And as historians, we all need to have some sort of structure that we put in place to frame how we look at these things. So In thinking about this structure that you've kind of built here and what you said a minute ago about these beliefs that you were kind of interrogating, what are some of those beliefs that you found uh, kind of in relation to these different air wars?
1: Well, let me talk about the beliefs and the structures at kind of the same time. And in order to do that, let me kind of use some of the words that the pilots who flew in Vietnam used. So our bases that American fighters flew from Obviously, we're in South Vietnam, and then the Navy presence in the Gulf of Tonkin, and then we had a number of bases at Thai air bases over in Thailand. And depending on where you launched from, and depending at what point in the war you launched from, that dictated what targets you could hit. So for example, oftentimes if you flew out of Thailand, you could not attack targets in South Vietnam. You had to launch from South Vietnam or from a Navy ship to attack targets in South Vietnam. And Ed Rasmus, who is a, a famous fighter pilot, noted that this just does not make any sense. He remembers looking at the ROE when he was there and saying that this, this is just completely messed up. So that, that kind of helps with the structure. To look at the, you know, air powers, lost cause mythology in and of itself. So here here are some of the tenets of that. You know, we never lost a conflict on the ground. In fact, there's a, a famous saying of an American general and a former North Vietnamese general meeting after the war where the American general says, uh, we never lost a battle on the ground. And the Vietnamese general says, well, that's true. It's also irrelevant. So we came out of the war believing that we had acquitted ourselves very well in ground conflict and an air-to-air conflict and air-to-ground conflict. But, you know, a- at the end of the day, that didn't really matter with our stated political objectives. And our stated political objectives lead me into the next point, which is if we had just bombed heavier earlier we could have won Vietnam. So instead of conducting linebacker in 1972, the belief that came out of the war was if the politicians had just let us, we could have won that war at any point in 1966 or 1967. Uh, What I found was that that's probably not true. And the primary reason for that is that the context of the war in 1972 is vastly different From the context of the war in 1966 and 1967, really throughout the 1960s. The fear inside Washington uh, that we could inadvertently kill a large number of Soviet or Chinese advisors, uh, that we could easily or inadvertently pull China or the Soviet Union into this war, I think that was very real. By the time we get to Nixon in 1971 and 1972, this has really changed. Uh, in fact, the Soviet leadership had kind of told America by 1972, you know, you need to do what you need to do to get out of this conflict. Uh, and we more or less had assurances that they were not going to become involved. These were not assurances we had in the 1960s. So I think the context of the war is very different. I think this is one of the key aspects of of the lost cause ideology of air power that I just did not find Anywhere in which if we had conducted a much more serious bombing operation earlier in the war, that the result would have been any different. And also, to to kind of go along with that, there's this idea that we were attacking useless targets inside of North Vietnam. And if we, we were only attacking the right targets, things would have been significantly different. Now, let me state unequivocally we attacked some pretty useless targets in, in North Vietnam. The, the North Vietnamese knew what we were allowed to hit. They knew what we weren't allowed to hit. They knew where we weren't allowed to hit. And they set up their air defenses in such a manner to take advantage of that. But that being said, if you go back and look at something like the, the 94 target list, there were a lot of strategic and operational targets on that list that, that we did hit throughout the war. So I think that kind of takes uh, the biggest part of, of the lost cause of air power there.
0: You kind of are getting into this, but the question that I think hangs over the head of really anyone that writes about this war is, you know, the question of, is it winnable for the U.S.? You, know, you see a lot of authors really wrestling with that question, and, and you've came down pretty definitively on the side of, no, this war was not winnable. And you go as far as to say, I'm going to read a quote here, it says, air power was not a decisive force in Vietnam, nor could it have been. So I want to press you a little further on that. Like, why was this war unwinnable? And what made air power so much less effective than maybe it might have been?
1: That is a it's a really important question, Mike. Uh, And it's, it's a really complicated question. And, And this is something that, that I struggled with throughout the writing of the book. I did want to be a little definitive and, and the side that I came down on obviously was that I did not think, you know, air power short of places that we were not willing to go in the context of a, a smaller regional war, air power was not capable of, of winning that war. Now there's a lot that goes into that. One, we have to decide what winning looks like. What do we mean by, by winning? And trust me, I am very cognizant that this the, the answers I give you today might have been even different than answers I would have given you a week ago uh, as I struggle with the news coming out of Afghanistan. And, and I really look at, at what what does winning mean and, and what does meeting your, your stated strategic goals mean. But if, if we look at it from the perspective of we want a South Vietnam that is going to be able to stand on their own uh, and stand up against a North Vietnamese incursion, we did not do that. Kind of outside the realm of of the military, but supporting a South Vietnamese government that was going to be supported by the people of South Vietnam, we did not do that either. So I think air power in the South was extraordinarily successful. When you look at things like uh, the Battle of I Drang or some, you know, some of the other operations in the Iron Triangle. Uh, Cedar Falls, Junction City, all of these different ground campaigns that went on, AirPower was enormously successful in supporting those operations. When you get into the interdiction in Laos and Cambodia, well, it's it's significantly less decisive there. We, we never do a good job of interdicting supplies on the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And this is not to say that the men who flew these missions, you know, did not give it their all, did not do it their best. I I readily recognize that when you look at something like Misty operations uh, and the guys who were flying, you know, low along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, they were doing their best. But but it was never going to be enough to stop the flow of supplies into South Vietnam. By the way, uh, in the research, I also discovered through using the Air Force's own reports that North Vietnamese forces in the South we're getting a lot of their supplies, food and other from the South. And so even if we had, if you could just pick up Laos and Cambodia and and move them, physically move them away from North and South Vietnam, the North Vietnamese forces operating in South Vietnam and in the border regions had enough supplies to 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 keep going, regardless of what we did along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So, you know, I've really got to come down and say that the interdiction campaign. In Laos and Cambodia were were much less successful than than we hoped they would be, and now this is probably going to lead us into uh, a, a question that that we could spend a lot of time on, and that's the efficacy of strategic bombardment against the north. You know, the linebacker campaigns, and so you've got two principal strategic bombing campaigns that occur. You know, towards the end of the conflict, these being linebacker one and linebacker two. Linebacker one, enormously successful, blunts the offensive of the north into the south. And really at this point, now it's it's who's gonna blink first, right? Who's gonna agree to sign the documents at, at the bargaining table? And this drags on throughout the fall of nineteen seventy-two. And again, the traditional view inside the, the military, but really inside the Air Force, is that we conduct the 10-day bombing campaign against North Vietnam in December of 1972, and this ends the war. I think I make it pretty clear in the book that I have some problems with that perception. I wholeheartedly agree that the Linebacker 2 operation absolutely ensured that we were going to get the POWs back, and if for no other reason than the bombing campaign there was worth it. That being said, we look at Linebacker 2, we as Americans look at Linebacker 2 as a victory, as kind of the last victory in the Vietnam conflict. What's really interesting is that the North Vietnamese forces feel like they won that campaign too. In fact, they call it the Dien Bin Phu of the sky. So this harkens back to their victory over the Finch uh, and it it kind of ties that in to what they believe was the final victory over the Americans from their perception they shot down 15 B52s in linebacker 2 that comes out to you know somewhere in the neighborhood of about 15% of the the total B52 force that flew and then there were probably you know numbers aren't entirely accurate here but there were probably you know somewhere between 8 and 15 more B52s that that never flew again they were able to limp back to Guam or Utapal, uh, but they never they never flew again so the air force likes to say that we only had a 2% loss rate during linebacker 2 uh, what they're doing there is they are taking the total number of sorties flown you know some 700 sorties over 10 days And saying that we lost 15 aircraft and that's a 0.02 loss rate or uh, 2% loss rate. You know, if you look at at how many B-52s we had flying, uh, which is about 200, we lost 15 of those. So I, I absolutely see the Vietnamese perspective of believing that they won that particular campaign.
0: Well, speaking of looking at their perspective, which is a really interesting thing to do, one of the issues that really makes writing about this war so difficult for anybody is the difficulty in getting Vietnamese sources, especially from the communist side. So you've talked about that a little bit in the book. I wonder if you could explain a little bit about that here. What are the challenges of getting those sources and why do so few historians uh, use them?
1: So there's a lot of challenges in researching inside of Vietnam. You know, for those of our listeners that don't know, when you go through something like a uh, history master's or PhD program, you're supposed to have a foreign language and you're essentially going to be tested in that foreign language by someone who teaches that foreign language on the campus. So at Kansas State, you know, I I had my option of testing in what? French, German, Russian, and probably uh, a handful of other languages. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Vietnamese was not a language I had the opportunity to test in. I don't know if if, uh, I'm sure my major professor, the great Don Rosick, knew plenty of Vietnamese speakers who could have tested me, but that was not really an option. So when you look at just the typical languages we learn here in the United States in middle, high school, and college—French, German, Latin—you know, maybe maybe some some Mandarin, but not a lot of opportunities to learn Vietnamese. So so obviously the language barrier would be a huge one, right? You you would have to teach yourself Vietnamese or find a, a school that taught it so that you could learn the language. So the language barrier is huge, and in the academic profession, you know, there are plenty of World War II historians who do a really good job in, in French and German. There's plenty of Cold War scholars who do a really good job in Russian. In fact, Russian was the language that, that I took in my PhD program, and I thought, you know, because I was going to be a Cold War studying the, the Soviets and the Americans, I thought Russian would be more useful. Turns out I was wrong there. Uh, so the language barrier. But beyond the language barrier, to even... Even get into the archives inside of Vietnam, this is not something that you can apply beforehand to do. You basically have to apply in person to go into their archives. So now you have to travel to Vietnam and you have to have the funds available to hang out long enough for the two to three week process to then get into the archives. And so I can't even speak to what the archives look like on the inside. The best that we can do right now here in America is to look at, at translated sources or to do as much research as you can looking at, at Vietnamese books and Vietnamese articles and then, you know, using something like Google Translate or, or Web Translate to, to see what they say. It's not a perfect solution, but I, I, I definitely took advantage of it. You know, the University Press of Kansas has a has a phenomenal translation of the People's Army of Vietnam, their official military history, which was uh, a very useful document. But this, this is a difficulty going forward that I think I made fairly clear is that what needs to happen here is for a future generation of American scholars uh, to get through that language barrier, to get through that archives barrier, and see what the sources inside of Vietnam say about the war with America from their perspective.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So as you're writing this and weighing all these different sources, and you're kind of telling such a large scale story, right, about the entirety of the war, I'm wondering if there's any kind of specific personal anecdotes or personal experiences that kind of jumped out at you when you were researching all this.
1: Yeah, there were several. Um, And I want to thank the great people at, at Texas Tech University, Uh, And their online Vietnam archive, which was hugely, hugely helpful in this. But the thing, the thing that, that jumped out to me that I, I don't know if enjoyed is the right word, but there were, there were several recordings. So look, this is long, long before the days of, of email and, you know, cell phones and secure voice lines and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of times outside of letter writing, uh, a lot of troops, uh, a lot of airmen, if they had the means would buy reel to reel recorders.
0: Yeah, my grandfather did that when he was serving over there.
1: Say if you are a younger generation, you're going to have to Google reel-to-reel recorder to get an idea of, of what it is. But they would make these, these tapes, right? And then they would mail the tapes back home, and then the family members could listen to them. So listening to those was really enjoyable because you could hear as they were talk, you could hear aircraft taking off in the background, uh, you could hear the sounds of mortar fire in the background. And so those, those were really fascinating. They were really personal to me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So just to bring all this together, you know, like I said at the beginning, we're approaching this 50th anniversary. Having written all this, what do you think the legacy of the war is? And does that legacy need some sort of reevaluation?
1: I absolutely think it needs a reevaluation. I, I think that there has been phenomenal scholarship on it in, in the last two decades. And I think that we have really come to a place where we've we've reexamined the overall narrative of Vietnam. And you know, if you look at it in the 70s and 80s, there was this concept you know that that we fought valiantly in Vietnam, but but we didn't we didn't actually lose Vietnam. And I think that's kind of come back around a little bit to the decision that yeah, well we 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 put up the good fight, but we did not we did not win Vietnam. And, you know, and again, I'm very cognizant as I say these things that we are you know history may not repeat itself, but it, it sounds awfully uh, alike what we've heard in the past. I'm I'm very cognizant that as I say these words. We're going through a similar struggle right now. You know, myself a veteran and a lot of my close friends being veterans, we we've spent a lot of time over the last week texting and talking about what the legacy of Afghanistan is. So maybe this is the perfect time to have a reexamination of Vietnam and really take a hard look at what went right, what went wrong, and what we learned from it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, if readers want to do that, the book is Air Power's Lost Cause, The American Air Wars of Vietnam. Again, it's from Roman and Littlefield Press. Brian, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, Where can we find more of your stuff online?
1: So you can find me at brianlasley.com. Uh, you can also find me at brianlasley on Twitter.
0: Sweet. Well, I'm at MWhankins.com, on Twitter at Hankenstein with a T-I-E-N. And all of us are online at balloons to dronescom Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. Please send us an email at balloons dronescom slash contact. And if you'd like to send an article to us for publication, please go to balloons slash submissions thank you all for listening and we will see you later